Welcome to the Data Stack Show. Each week, we explore the world of data by talking to the people shaping its future. You'll learn about new data technology and trends and how data teams and processes are run at top companies. The Data Stack Show is brought to you by Rudderstack, the CDP for developers. You can learn more at rudderstack.com. Welcome back to the Data Stack Show. I am incredibly excited about our guest today. We're going to talk with Eric Bernardson, who was one of the early engineers at Spotify, did a ton of things there, including music recommendations, started at Better, the insurance company, when they were just a couple people and scaled that. You know, He was there when they grew to 10,000 people. So just incredible experience. And he's building something new and fascinating called Modal. So Costas, this is not going to surprise you or the listeners at all. But I want to hear about the lessons that Eric has learned, you know, going through this drastic phase of scale, you know, two times over, which I think is pretty rare. And especially to do it, you know, at a company like Spotify, which I think solves a problem that a lot of other companies tried to solve. You know, we tend to think of Spotify as dominant today, but back in, you know, I guess 2008, there were a lot of other major players in the space, you know, and they were just a small, scrappy startup. So I'm just really interested to hear that story. How about you? I mean, obviously, like, I'd love to hear about that, but Eric is also like building, let's say, on the, the new version of the next generation of cloud infrastructure. So that's based like on serverless, that is like much more seamless as an experience, like from for the developer. So I'd love to talk more about that stuff and see like what a serverless experience is, first of all, why it is important and what the, uh, you have to do in order to build something that is serverless, right? So yeah, that's what I'm going like to focus more and I'm pretty sure we're going to have surprises today. So. Oh yeah, there's no question. There is no question. All right, well, let's uh, jump in and talk with Eric. Is it? Eric, welcome to the Data Stack Show. So many things to cover. So thank you for giving us some of your time. Thanks for hosting me. It's fun. All right. Well, give us, give us your background, kind of what you've done over your career, and then tell us a little bit about what you're doing today. Yeah, I'll, I'll try to condense it down. I originally do the chronological order. It's a bit easier. I, I grew up in Sweden. I did a lot of programming competitions when I was little. I, I was always coding and like messing around with, you know, this was back in the nineties, uh, running code and, and building crappy websites. Ended up meeting a bunch of people in school who were early at Spotify. So at, when, when I was done with school and I started physics, but not that I don't think it matters, but, but I ended up joining Spotify in 2008, spent a couple of years there in, in Stockholm, building the music recommendation system, eventually ended up moving to New York. I built up a team, did all kinds of other stuff too at Spotify, not just music racks, but that was sort of the prime thing, but I also did a lot of like random sort of data infrastructure and ended up open sourcing a thing called Luigi, which was an orchestrator and another thing called Annoy, which is a vector database. I built up a team of about 30, left in, in 2015 and took a job as a CTO at a company that was then 10 people. I was there for six years, was better. Company's called Better as a mortgage company. The, the company ended up growing to 10,000 people, then went through some challenging times. And so it's a little bit smaller now, but, but to oversaw the technology there, 
And then I left almost two years ago and left in order to pursue a bunch of random ideas I had around data and, and started thinking about, okay, like, you know, how can we build better tools? What's missing with data infrastructure today? What's the tool that I always wanted to have 20 years? Uh, so I started working on something and uh, over the last two years, I built up a small team and raised some money and, uh, and, and I don't know if I mentioned the name, but uh, yeah, Mo Monal is, is a company where I'm working on right now. Very cool. Well, we want to dig into modal because it's so exciting. But first, I'd love, I mean, you have such a unique experience, right? So Spotify 2008, you know, handful of people on the the super early team. I think, you know, what's interesting, actually, I think back on that and, you know, when you think about streaming, Spotify is the first thing that comes to mind. But back then, you know, there was RDO and like a couple other major like streaming services that, you know, were really large actually at the time thinking back in those sort of early days of streaming, you know, which is super interesting. But you have been through this scale arc, you know, more than once, right? So like, you know, Spotify in 2008 to 2015, hyper growth, the company growing to thousands of people, better, you know, 10 people to 10,000 people, just serious exponential growth. And with those unique experiences, I'd love to look at that from two angles. I mean, both personally, I'm just so interested in this, but I think our listeners as well. Let's talk about Spotify first. So between the time you started and the time you left, the technology landscape went through an unbelievable change. You know, there were, you know, there were things in 2015, I think you said when you left, that didn't exist back in 2008. And so you have this massive change happening in the technology landscape as your company's going through this period of hyper growth. How did you manage that on the technology side? Because, you know, it seems like you would constantly be facing decisions around infrastructure, like we can get more performance or leverage this new technology. Like, when do we change this? Why do you change it? When are you forced to change it? So we'd just love to know what sticks out to you as you think back over that experience on the technical side of how you manage through such an interesting time of scale with such a drastically changing tech landscape. Yeah, I mean, I think the most obvious thing is obviously like the cloud is different, right? Like, yeah. you know, when I started working on when we, when we built Spotify, it was all on prep, right? Like we have like capacity in the data center and like put our own racks there and like, you know, run it to stick through that. And, and, and I think, you know, now like almost no one does that. So I, I think that's probably the biggest thing. And, but also, you know, you look at like the data side, like back then it was all like Hadoop, you know, cause, cause people were inspired by, you know, what Google was doing, the MapReduce and there really wasn't anything that scaled and, and the data that, that Spotify generated was, you know, relatively large for its time. We didn't, you know, didn't want to go to like the Oracle route. And, and so, so Hadoop was the way to go. I don't know. I was kind of dark ages. Like I, I, I look back at that and, you know, I, 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 you know, I do not miss it. It was pretty terrible in, in many ways. And <laughs> yeah. I, I think, I think also being like so new to it, like I, I, you know, there's like a certain amount of like normalization of, you know, mm. bad things that I didn't realize until much later, like how crappy it was. Uh, uh, and, and so in terms of like the technology, I, I wouldn't say there was like a particular day I just woke up and, you know, felt like, you know, Marty McFly landing in the future, but I, 
because it was like every day it was like a little bit new. Yeah. But so, so, so staying up to that and up to date on that was like, it's a little bit tricky, but I don't know. Like I've been doing it so long that I feel like if you look at like one Git, GitHub repo every day, like I can sort of, you know, yeah, just see up to date what's going on. But yeah, the cloud was always a big thing. And, and I'm very grateful that the cloud exists. And, and so I think that's made a huge difference uh, in terms of how we operate with data. Yeah, for sure. How about, you know, so you, you leave Spotify in 2015. Were there any, did that, I mean, I'm sure it did, but influence the way that you did things at Better? Like, were there any, you know, sort of any big lessons that you took into Better based on that experience? I think so. I mean, I, I spent 12, 13 years or something like that at consumer companies that are doing data stuff. And I, I mean, one thing I learned is just like, you know, how incredibly important it is as a consumer company to just like really have a, you know, firm understanding of what your users are doing on the mm-hmm. side and conversion rates and the friction points and, you know, and, and the onboarding flow and every, you know, everything that happens in that and like, you know, what's your activation and retention and insurance and all those things. And so I think just coming into my second company, thinking a lot about those things, like from scratch, I think was incredibly helpful. I mean, there was many other things, but it doesn't like sounds down on the data side, like just, you know, kind of as I was like, I mean, the other thing is also like maybe like a counter learning. It's like, I also learned like the fact that you can't really do data for like, I, I mean, earlier on the better, like we didn't have a data team for like two, three years, right? Like, just, you know, you don't have any users, like, and you don't have any data, then it doesn't make any sense. Right, right. And so, so I, I think that was also kind of clear at Spotify, like early on, like, you know, I initially joined Spotify in 2008 to do music recommendations. Like, you kind of realized kind of quickly, like, we had much bigger problems to solve. And like, we also didn't yeah. have enough data to do. So, so I, I ended up like really not, you know, work, I ended up working on a lot of other stuff for the first few years. And then you got back to it. And I think something similar happened at Better. Like we didn't really have a data team, you know, the first few years. It was like very basic stuff. But, but then eventually data become like incredibly important for Better. And then I think that's sort of a transformation I've seen a lot of different other companies too. Is, is you know, like how, how do you start to think in a data-driven way? Like it's, I, I think it's more just like a technology shift that ends up being kind of a culture shift too. Yeah, super interesting. What One specific question there, just out of pure curiosity, when did you... Like, what was the point at which you felt like there was enough data to really make meaningful progress on the recommendation side? Yeah, I, I don't know. It's like, so, I mean, specifically for that, like, it, you know, music is so like, you just, like the, the problem I was working on was like so unique in a way. Like, I don't know if there's like a general lesson to learn there. Like we, we had a very big matrix, like the rows were like, you know, users and the, the columns were tracks and we just wanted enough entries in that matrix yeah in order to feel like you know we could complete the rest of the matrix so 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 that probably took a couple of years i mean like early on like we already had like basic stuff that worked but it did cover a large part of the the the, the catalog like it only covered mm. it, we should only make it good enough for like you know yeah the like least common denominator right like it yeah so, so getting enough data that it would extend to like the full table of the catalog, I, I think that took many, many years. So for a long time, you know, that the, the, the recreation system only covered maybe the top 100,000 tracks and then eventually covered a million tracks and eventually mm. a million tracks. Like that took a long time. Yep. Yeah, super interesting. And then how about on the people side? So, you know, it, 
sounds like you went to like you were, you know, sort of on a very small or maybe even like a one person, you know, engineering team or, you know, a couple people to, I would guess, managing or like overseeing hundreds of hundreds of engineers. What's yeah. that to you from that experience of like, you know, because the technology side is one thing, but the people side is another one, which is, you know, arguably like a lot more difficult in many ways. Yeah. Yeah. People, people are tricky. I, yeah. And, and, you know, Spotify was weird, right? Like Spotify was just kind of almost like anarchy. And, and I think there's, you know, in retrospect, I think it's kind of a unique environment in that sense that, you know, sort of, sort of told me that like, if you just hire a bunch of like, you know, relatively strong people and just like throw them into a room and like, you know, tell them to go like build an amazing service, like you can actually sort of make that work if you have the right culture. So I, I think to me, that was a very positive experience that I had, you know, with mm. me from Spotify, it, you know, and the amount of trust and the amount of like self-organization that in the early days of Spotify that we had, which also had like, you know, negative sides. Like I, no one told me who my manager was for the first three years. Like I didn't even know, like, you know, I didn't have anyone involved, <laughs> like whatever, but like, and like no one told me what to work on either. Like, I, so I was just like sitting, wow. around, like, you know, I started building stuff and like eventually I found some stuff that was useful that I just. Like, hey, I have this like data, like people got interested in, you know, so it's, I, I started working on so much like random stuff, but, but I think, I think the sort of complete anarchy that existed at Spotify, which, you know, people, you know, might seem scary, actually it was like a very positive thing in, in the early days. I, I don't think it like scaled beyond like maybe, you know, 20, 30 engineers, and then, you know, yeah. to impose a bit more structure. So, but, but I, I'm sort of fundamentally like a believer in people and, you know, trusting people. And, and so I took that with me with, to, when I, I, I built up second bit better which scale up to 200 engineers that, you know, you know, sort of aspirationally, you can get pretty close to a culture where people just come in every morning and just ask themselves, like, what is the number one thing I should do today that adds mm. the most business value, right? Like helping people have that inner voice, like that sort of, you know, guiding, mm. you know, star of like, you know, today, these are the things that matter. And like, you know, let's figure out together how to get there. I I'm not naive. Like, I think there's always going to need, you know, we're going to need managers and like performance reviews and all those stuff. Sure. But, but like, you know, I think it's like, you know, as like a thought experiment, like how close can you get to that, you know, mm. that fully self-organized, you know, platonic ideal of an organization. And I think the truth is you can get pretty close to that. Mm. Least, you know, if you instill that culture into people. Can I ask a specific question about Spotify in the early days? Because yeah. You know, when you use the term anarchy to describe company culture, that's a pretty like shocking term, I think, for a lot of people. But it's so compelling that, you know, there was self-organization. What do you think enabled that? Because the thing that comes to mind is like, okay, no one told you what to build, but was the mission, like, even if it was very broad and even like somewhat difficult to translate down into like, what code should I write today? Was the mission like clearly and consistently communicated so that people could sort of self-organize and at least prioritize? Like what were the unique characteristics that you think enabled that? And because a lot of times you think about like aligning around a mission, even with a, a complete lack of structure, at least people are building towards the same like direction. No one sat down and like, you know, wrote a bunch of like cultural tenets and put it up on the wall. But, but I, I feel like it almost like kind of ended up being that way because I think Spotify just had such a unique sort of product. Hmm. And, and frankly, a product that like people just love, like, you know, and, and I think that was, you know, 
looking back and, and this is my first job, you know, at a school. So like, I, I don't think I realized like how unique that was in that sense, but like, yeah. you know, how, 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 you know, cool. I had like everyone who worked at Spotify had this like, you know, love for their own product. I, I mean, like, frankly, like, I don't know any mm. other product that like, you know, the, they, the, the employees of that company would use, you know, their own product. Like, I don't know, like maybe if you're, you know, you work at Ikea, like maybe you're sitting at Ikea at sheriff's all day. You're like, okay, like, you know, but, but like, I would listen to Spotify 12 hours a day while I was working at Spotify. Mm. So like, you know, if you're like using your own product, like 12 hours a day, like, I, I think there's, yeah. you know, so much like care for the, pro like, you know, that is fascinating. Yeah. That's like a visceral, it's like such a visceral personal experience, but that's actually shared among a small group of people that can sort of direct work like through a high level of care. That is so fascinating. That is such an interesting dynamic. Yeah, and I think that factor was like tremendously helpful. And I'm not saying it's like, it's like, you know, necessary. Like, I think, I think it's definitely harder if you're working on, I don't know, like, a, you know, claims processing software for like, you know, right. corporate, uh, uh, you know, liability gotcha. insurance, right? Like, then it's probably a little bit harder, but I think, you know, there's still ways to sort of, you know, create a little bit of that culture of like, you know, people feeling like they have a power and an autonomy and like, so, you know, all those things. So yeah, absolutely. So fascinating. So interesting. One, okay. One more question from your background that I just can't help but ask, but uh, coding competitions, is there like one coding competition that sticks out in your memory? From doing those in the '90s, or like one yeah. challenge, it's more like we're only two thousand. I don't know. I I think, yeah, I don't know. Like I, there, there's like a lot of that, but like you know, like there was like a crazy one. We go to like Hungary every year, and there's like this twenty-four hour programming competition that was like really different. Now it was actually kind of fun because like you know you have all this like weird programming competition, like it's like problems, like you have to control like I don't know like a Lego train or something like that, like build software. So that, that was a lot of fun. Plus, it was like 24 hours. It's kind of fun. They always yeah. have to like manage your own energy. Like it's kind of sure. Yeah, it's like a a physical challenge too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At the end of the, you know, ne you know, early hours of like this, the second day, you're like so out of it. So that one, that one used to be like fun every year. Yeah, super interesting. All right, well, tell us, give us just a brief overview of what modal is. And then I want to hand the mic off to Costas because I know he has a bunch of questions about modal. But yeah, can you just give us a brief overview of, of what it is? Yes, it is a way to run code in the cloud in a way that, you know, primarily focus on data things. So maybe let, let me contextualize this. So I, I think it's actually, so, so, so sorry if this may not be a, quite as brief as you expect that. I, I, I took, you know, I, I always wanted to build better tools for data engineers, like or data scientists. Like I looked at a lot of different, like, you know, as a CTO, I saw this very clearly. Like I think data teams like need better tools, right? They're sort of behind, I think, other segments of, you know, software engineering. And so, and then I looked at a lot of different like parts of the stack, like, you know, I, I looked at a lot of orchestration to begin with. I, as I mentioned, I'm the author of an open source tool, Belegi, which no one released yesterday, but like 10 years ago, some people used to sort of kind of a precursor, it, like kind of before airflow is like sort of simple yes. stuff. Sure. So I started working on that. I was like, you know, this is really cool. Like, you know, like an orchestrator kind of sits in the middle, it controls a lot of the other stuff. You know, what if you start there, you can sort of, you know, then we'll become this like nexus for all the other stuff. Then I realized like at some point, like, cool, like you can orchestrate the code, but you have to run it somewhere. 
And like, where do you run it? And I started thinking, okay, I have to build this integration layer with like, with like Kubernetes or Docker or like Lambda yep. or like these two. And that's just like turned out in my brain. It's like, it's blown and realized I have down that is like how hard it is. Like, you know, fundamentally, like the, the user experience of building an orchestrator will never be better than the, the, the sort of user experience of like the, the integration with the underlying substrate where you actually run code. Yep. So I was like, why don't I, why don't I just like fix that problem instead? And so I started focusing on this idea that like, what if it's like throw out all the other stuff, right? Like, you know, you look at like, you know, data teams and like how they run code today. Like there's like Kubernetes, Docker, Terraform, you know, Helm, like all this stuff, Airflow. And then like, what if you started from scratch and like built it in a truly collaborative way where like you don't have to think about resources. You don't have to think about like, you know, setting up instances, installing infrastructure. It just like runs in the cloud for you. Scales up and down. You can schedule things like, what would that look like? And, and so that's what I started working on two years ago. And, and yeah, we, we have something that, you know, works reasonably well today. We're stilling it in a sort of close beta testing stage right now. Costas, all yours. Thank you, Eric. Thank you. So, Eric, you mentioned it. So let's start from that because it's, uh, you said like you have a passion of like building tools for like data engineers. And Luigi is probably one of the first that you've built, maybe, or at least the, yeah, the one that got open sourced, right? So tell us a little bit more about Luigi. And I'm not talking about that much about like the, te the technology itself, but like how, how did you get into building it? Yeah, so, so just kind of a recap of Luigi is it's like, it, it's an orchestrator, AKA workflow scheduler, you know, sort of the same uh, category is primarily Airflow. Now there's also, mm -hmm. uh, there's DAX or pre-bank and, and flight with girls. So, but, but like when I started working at Spotify, there really wasn't anything in that space, right? And so I, I ended up having, you know, more and more complex data pipelines for the music recommendation system. And, and like, you know, like a lot in particular, a lot of the new jobs. Like, so I would have serious, like, you know, complicated, you know, hundreds of new jobs that I had to chain together and like run in a particular order. And I ended up like realizing at some point, like, actually, this is a graph. You know, we should model it as such. And, you know, because I'm like an old school person in Bitcoin for a long time, like I, I, you know, my first sort of like, you know, thought was like make file, like this is kind of like make file. And so I started looking at make file and like, I kind of like, you know, cause I, I like the idea of this like functional nature of like how make file works. You mm -hmm. define like targets and rules. I mean, like they, there's, the syntax of make files incredibly arcane and like, you know, super annoying. Yeah. It's like dollar percentage is like. Yeah exit code of the previous, you know, whatever it's like, I just like absurd because it was built in the seventies, I think something like that. So anyway, so I, I started, but, but like, I, I went to sort of idea of it. So I started building Luigi, you know, sort of loosely model that, and then, you know, kind of evolved, like Luigi was actually the third iteration of, of the same sort of idea. And, and the first one where I felt like this is good enough, or I'm just going to throw it out there on GitHub and see if anyone uses it. And I guess other people had similar problems. Like, you know, after just a few months, like someone Foursquare reached out and they're like, Hey, we're running Luigi. We're, you know, we'd love to collaborate. And then, you know, from there, like, you know, over the next few years, like there were many more companies that started using it more and more. I never like thought Luigi was like amazing. It's kind of funny in a way, but like, you know, cause I, to me, it was just like a thing that solved a particular problem. That was like good enough where I felt like other people would also have the same problem. And I think they had. And so I think there were a couple of things that I'm really happy with Luigi. Like it, it sort of had this like functional nature of like, you know, how you express the DAG. 
but, but there are other things I also don't like about it. In particular, I think the reason why people liked Airflow more was like it had a much better web interface and a bunch of other stuff that people actually wanted. So I don't know. It was, it was kind of a fun day. I mean, people still use it, but it's kind of rare today. Yeah. Yeah. So what's like the current state of the project? Like, is Luis still above it? Like, you, you said they like kind of dead. I mean, I don't know. Like, there are, as I mentioned, like, there are a few companies like still using it, but I think, you know, I haven't touched it for six years. But like, I think Spotify still has like a lot of stuff in Luigi. I heard dated organizations stuff. I mean, there are some companies that still use it, right? Yeah. Kind of like speaks a little bit to like, you know, it's a very sticky product. It's very hard to get out of, you know, these like work rules. So once you like use them, you know, then you have to rewrite all the code. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it's not being like actively maintained. And I think for a good reason. I think many, I, I mean, I always like thought about it. Like, what if I'd actually like kept working in Lucy? What would it look like today? And, and I think, you know, there are, you know, that's actually kind of like what I started working on. You know, I, I mentioned like, you know, work straighter, like before Moto. Yeah. And, and I think there's a lot of things you could have done like so much better. And I still kind of don't see him like the today's workflow schedule. Mm -hmm. But, but, but yeah, I mean, yeah, to answer your question, like, which is not underactive. Okay. Right now. Okay. So how does like, um, orchestrator like fits in like the worlds of today with like the serverless cloud infrastructure that you have in mind when you're building model? Yeah, I mean, what was like kind of the layer below, right? Like, as I mentioned, like I started thinking about orchestrated and I realized actually like, I, I don't want to build orchestrated. I want to build a layer below, right? Like, because I, I think that's a much bigger problem. And so I think it was actually two quite different layers. And, and we have a couple of people we use modal together with the orchestrator, like Airflow, Prefect, or Dexter. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I mean, like, you know, so, 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 and, and the, you know, and, and those, by the way, like orchestrator, like, I feel like in a way, like there's someone agnostic as to what, like where the job actually runs, like typically people run it on Kubernetes or, 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 or something else or, but, but you can certainly integrate with the surplus. Like I, I feel like in general, you know, like thinking about where the cloud is going and maybe this is a function of having seen this kind of firsthand, like all from like the old days of like on-prem to like now, like the cloud, I think we're still kind of early in the cloud, you know, in the evolution of the cloud. And I think. To me, the natural sort of inevitability of the cloud is to some extent serverless. Like why as an engineer should I have to think about these like, you know, these abstractions like clusters and instances, managed resources and like, you know, all this other stuff, right? Like computers should just do it for me because they're much better at those, those types of things. And so I, I'm extremely bullish on serverless for that reason. And I especially think in, you know, in data land, that might actually be better fit for serverless, right? So yeah, there's a lot of like aspects, you know, serverless so far, I think has been like mostly prevalent in like, you know, front end and back end type architectures. And you, you see a couple of vendors like going all in, like sort of for sale or like Netlify or whatever, like doing that kind of stuff. But I, yeah. I think like the sort of nature of like what developers in data teams do might actually be a better fit. You have this like very like bursty workloads. You have like esoteric sort of or heterogeneous hardware requirements. And you have, you know, sort of like, very like exploratory things that require you to like, you know, build things quickly and like, you know, try it out and stuff like that. So, so that's sort of, you know, idea that I was had with modal, like, you know, why I'm like, I, I don't know if I'm asking a question. I kind of, you know, ended up diverging a little bit, but uh, that, uh, those sort of things that I think about a lot mm -hmm. these days. Okay. So like, uh, if I start like working with modal today, like what's my experience would be like, well, how do I interact with model and how is this like different than the cloud or 
yet something. Yeah. I, I think in particular, the, the biggest difference is the speed at which you can work with infrastructure. So mm-hmm. traditionally, infrastructure was always this like annoying thing you had to do it. Yeah. Right. Or, or like, I mean, like, I think, you know, this is still very much like it is in most companies, right? Like you write code, you run it locally as you're developing code, you're sort of writing it locally, you're like kind of test running it. And then like, eventually you're like, okay, great. I'm going to like deploy this to production. It's time. And then you're like, oh my God, I have to like containerize this. I have to like write once YAML. I have to like, you know, whatever, you know, mm-hmm. go ask the ops team to do this thing, you know, permission to stuff. And, and, and like, you know, which ended up being just like this inordinate amount of like chore, like just like, well, like, you know, it's like a super annoying process. And, and so one of the things that I fundamentally believe in is like, you know, like what if, I used to think that like, you know, the only way to like work with the cloud is like, you, you sort of have to like, you know, mock all the things like globally that, you know, but, but then I actually realized, so, but like, what if you actually bring in the cloud, like much, much earlier in that process, right? Like what if mm-hmm. you like always run things on the cloud as you're writing code locally? What if you like, when you run it, it actually runs in the cloud in the same environment that you're going to, you know, eventually deploy it to. And, and so that, that's what modal does. And, and I think, you know, and the only way to do that is to make it super, super fast and fast, not in the sense of like running it fast, because, you know, there's like upper limits to how fast computers are that we can't do much about. But, but, but at works, however, what we can do is we can starve containers super fast. We can take code locally. Like you're writing a script, you know, I just wanted to run it. And so what we can do is we take that code, stick it in a container in the cloud, we launch it in less than a second. And, you know, we'll launch a hundred of those containers in less than a second. And immediately just like print to, you know, standard out, like whatever is happening, like you see it. And like, you don't have this like annoying, you know, you have to build a container then push it to ECR, then go trigger to this interface and then go like download the logs you know, whatever, like, yeah, you don't have this like super long feedback loops, right? Like when I think about developer productivity, to me, I think developer productivity is like best understood in terms of these like feedback loops. And so you have to make these feedback loops fast in order to developers to feel happy and to feel productive. Mm-hmm. If the model does this, you know, with the cloud, like you, you go from like writing code locally to ro- actually executing it in the cloud in less than a second, mm-hmm. which is something we have to go very deep and like kind of in the guts of, you know, containers and file systems and that kind of stuff to, to accomplish. Mm-hmm. Okay. We'll talk about that, but before that, so you said that like model is, uh, I mean, no, before, before that, your passion, like building products, like technology, like that's tools, that's going to be used by data engineers, by data, let's say professionals. How is model used for that by data engineering team? Like what is like a data engineering team going to use model for today? Yeah. 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 And, and like, yes. So I, what I think is interesting is like over the last 20 years or whatever, 15 years, it's like, you know, there's been all this like back and forth between like, you know, first we were saying I do, and then the warehouses came and it's been like, you know, now, you know, SQL is like very dominant, you know, for a lot of workloads. I, I love SQL. But, you know, I think fundamentally, like my belief that there's always going to be stuff you have to write code for, right? So SQL covers like a very large, like, you know, percentage of work, workloads. It's always stuff you're going to have to run, write code for, like, you know, doing, you know, machine learning or doing simulations or whatever. So, so that type, so, so model exclusively focuses on code. And in particular right now, we'll support Python, right? Like eventually we'll probably have support for other languages too. 
but the benefit of focusing on data teams specifically is like they're almost always used Python. Yeah. So, so what are the problems that model primarily helps with? Like right now we're targeting what I call, what I think of as like embarrassingly parallel workloads. So those could be things like I have hundred million images and I need to compute embeddings for those. And I have this function that rolls in a GPU that takes an image and produces vector. And now I just want to scale it up and run it. That's like one use case. Or I have, you know, hundred million satellite images. So I want to run some computer vision. Or there can also be things like I need to scrape a bunch of websites using a headless browser, you know, Chromium or Playwright or whatever, and take screenshots or like, you know, you know, stuff like that. It could be, you know, financial backtesting. It could be mm-hmm. like very tough simulations. Monte Carlo simulations, you know, like, you know, either, you know, pricing and financial instruments or I don't know, like, you know, sampling from Brazil, you know, things like that. So, so we focus a lot on these two types of sort of embarrassingly parallel use cases that as a sort of, you know, starting point, but and then that, another slightly smaller bucket of things tend to be just like simple cron jobs. Like, you know, people have like a tiny script and they just, you know, they just want to run it every hour, like every every midnight or something like that. So they're not saying it's not in a smaller bucket, um, mm-hmm. but, but I think there's a lot of, you know, super early stage tech teams and like, they just have like a tiny thing. doesn't even have to be a tech team. They just want to run something at a schedule. Mm-hmm. And how does like model first convert to something like AWS Lambda, for example? Architecture, it's very similar in the sense that we're all about like running containers in a way where you don't have to think about the underlying infrastructure. Mm-hmm. I think the difference is primarily, and I thought a lot about this, like, you know, why has serverless not been more successful? My answer to that is like, frankly, that the developer experience kind of sucks. Like, mm-hmm. kind of annoying. I don't know if you're like, you know, production has like Lambda functions, but it's like a pretty bad experience. Like you have to set up like, you know, CloudWatch or like whatever it's called, I don't remember. Like there's so much stuff you have to do. And you, you don't have to like, you know, nice feedback where you can just like run code and it's like worse than cloud. So big part of what Modal does is really just, you know, mm-hmm. make it put like, you know, offer a much, much better user experience. And I think because the latency between like writing code and launching containers is so critical to that developer experience, we basically have to start over and build our own infrastructure for that. Mm-hmm. Okay. And while you were going through like the use cases that you have seen like in model so far, you talked like a lot about like, let's say working like with unstructured binary data. What about tabular data? I mean, do you see like use cases also there or this is not, let's say. Yeah. I mean, I think there's like always stuff that, you know, I mean, like, you know, like there's always stuff that you can, if you can do things in pure SQL, like, I think you should do it. Right. But it's like, let's say you have like a lot of like tabular data and, you know, you want to fit, you know, an XG boost on top of that. Like, you know, mm-hmm. that might be hard to do in a database. I mean, I don't know. Like, I know there's some like crazy, like Postgres extensions, whatever to do that today. But like, typically you want to write code for that, you know, you want to run it in like a normal, like container environment. And so I think that would be like one example, right? Like, you know, we can, you know, take that data, like, you know operate on it and like fit models and then like help you deploy those models. Cause you can also take, you know, functions and model and deploy them as sort of, you know, either rest endpoints or like, you know, functions that use internally from other apps inside of an organization. So you could also use this sort of, you know, a, a, a kind of a model, that model serving interface. But, but yeah, it's, it's, those are some of the things we can do with model on tabular data that, you know, you, you, you probably 
don't want to use the database for. Mm-hmm. But, there, but again, like, you know, to go back, like, I think there's like plenty of stuff where database is amazing. You definitely start with database. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. And there's like a, another like huge conversation about what like a serverless database looks like, which is another interesting topic. But let's talk about model and like the architecture of model, right? Like what it takes to build a platform like model, like a serverless clouds infrastructure service. Yeah. I, you know, so I started looking at this a couple of years ago and immediately like kind of ran into this problems, like, you know, building Docker containers and like pushing Docker containers around is kind of slow. And so how to fix that. And so, so one of the things I realized pretty easy, pretty, pretty early on is that I'm not going to be able to use Docker for this. And, and so we ended up using a much lower level primitive rum C and, you know, I mentioned, I think we have switched to Firecracker and to run containers, which, which, you know, using that, you can actually spin up containers in uh, like milliseconds or less. Uh, the problem is like, okay, now you have this like big container, like container images, like how do you, how do you like ship around these like big container images? And, like, you don't want to like fall for this, like, you know, sort of traditional like Docker method of like, okay, we're just going to push and pull the whole image. Although it does a little bit of the duplication on the layer levels. It's a little bit faster sometimes, but like, if you have, you know, a container image that's like 10 gigabytes large. You really want to avoid like, you know, sending that back and forth over the network between different nodes in your cluster. So I basically realized, okay, well, if you look for containers, sorry, this is getting really technical, by the way. So feel free to tell me to shut up. It's just it's like too low level. I realized like, if you look at container images, first of all, most of the container images are like never read. You know, the average like container image, like, you know, if you look at like a bare bones, like Linux distribution, it's like. All this like random like time zone information from for like Uzbekistan and like random islands like no one lives off locale information like watch the stuff right like so why even send those things in the first place? The other thing is like even for the inform- for the the files on the Linux distribution or, or on that image that are actually read, most of them tend to be the same. It tends to be you know the Python interpreter, a bunch of Python standard library. You know, a bunch of stuff that's like very, you know, like when you launch a Python interpreter, like it'll read like the same few hundred files roughly, right? Like, you know, and, and that doesn't differ at much across like different, it differs across different Python versions. Mm-hmm. But so what we ended up doing was like, we're just, we ended up building our own file system that basically stores all these container images in a content address bay where, you know, we go through all the image, we compute checksums for every image, for every file, and then we, we basically store those files only once in an underlying network storage. And then we like kind of create this like virtual file system in Fuse. We ended up building a Rust for performance that then exposes that to the container runtime as like a Linux uh, a root. And it actually works super well. Like everyone told me like, you're crazy for building a file system, but I, we, we ended up doing it. It actually works really well. Mm-hmm. So we have to build a bunch of other stuff too, like sort of along those lines, but, but, but that's like, you know, kind of one of the things that we ended up building that's like very technically challenging and kind of complex. But I think ultimately like also now let's just deliver this experience to consumers that I always wanted is like, you know, just write code and just like immediately starts in the cloud. Mm-hmm. So if I understand correctly, you are using like in terms of like the technologies that have been used, like as part of like the model stuff, you, you use Spycracker, right? Not yet. Uh, uh, we're, we, 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 we're planning to move to Firecracker. It has, this is for GPU, it is some of the issues, so, but, but that's the plan. Okay. So what are you using now instead of like Firecracker? 
we use, we use run C, just like a lower level primitive. Uh, Docker actually uses run C under the hood. Okay. It's just like a simpler. Okay. And but if you look at like what, what is a Linux container, it's like basically like chroot and like setconf and like, you know, C groups and a bunch of like those types of things. And that's essentially what like run C does. It's like a thousand line Go binary or Go script binary or program that, that basically just like, you know, wraps those things into kind of a unified OCI image compatible run. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then you use like Fuse to create like the file system, but here you like store your name, what is there, right? So that's correct. Yeah, yeah. And and actually every fuse, you know, makes it pretty easy to build file systems. We actually ended up like, you know, like the, the first prototype we built in Python, because there's like Python bindings for fuse, which is like terrible from a performance point of view. But it's actually kind of nice, like because you know, it was very simple to experiment with. Mm-hmm. Uh, so fuse was probably nice. And where do you run that stuff? It's like you're using like bare metal servers that you have like on the clouds. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So we need we run it on this bare metal. East two instances, and then, you know, we maintain that pool of, of workers and, and we, you know, we start and stop instances as we need to, to, you know, need, need more resources. So, so, so from a, cause, you know, users point of view, they never have to think about those things. Like we, we do that all the time. Yeah. And, uh, okay. The users do not have to think about that stuff, but you have to do it for them. Right. So yeah, it's like, oh, oops. Right, of like such a product and infrastructure, how it looks like, how like an SRE or like whatever else title you have, like in model, like look like. I, this might be like a controversial opinion, but like I actually don't think you should have like a separate ops team like early on. I, mm-hmm. I think you should have like people who are like maybe like more like interested in it who can like get on a lot more with it. But, you know, early on, like, I actually really think, you know, you align incentives really nicely if everyone's part of the firefighting at all times, right? You know, if, if something breaks, anyone in that team just, like, jumps in. Ideally, the person who, like, you know, overwrote the code will, like, understands that part of the code that, yeah. I mean, we're early, you know, we're early. Like, we're six people, so mm-hmm. we don't have, like, a dedicated office. You know, eventually we'll have, but not right now. Yep, yep. No, I totally understand that. I think that's also my experience, like, in building, like, a team's. So how it is like, let's say different than what, let's say someone was doing operations in like a company that is, you know, like relying on like Kubernetes and like other kinds of primitives, like for the infrastructure there, how's like different the operations between like model and like a company that is more, more cloud traditional, let's say. You're never going to have to write a single line of YAML. That's the biggest difference. <laughs> I, I think you are going to do like a very good job in like hiring for this podcast episode, <laughs> but you just said, so <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think we have to write all the YAML, you know, once and, and so that our users never have to write YAML. I, I yeah, I, I think, I mean, like, you know, ideally, like, you know, don't have to even think about it. Like, I, I think, you know. In your mind, I don't even have to think about data engineering, right? Like, you know, and this might also be a controversial opinion, but like, I almost wonder if like long-term, like data engineering as such, you know, as it is today, like will go away. Because I, I look at like all these startups, right? Like, you know, every tech company in the world ends up building their own internal data platform, right? And yeah. they all kind of look the same. It's like, you know, you start out with like Kubernetes and, you know, a bunch of stuff. And then like someone builds an abstraction to make it easier to launch internal like machine learning models or train things in notebooks or whatever. And then, you know, but, but like, you know, 
what if like, you know, someone just built that, you know, and then like sold that as a service. Like I, I almost, I kind of feel like the world would be a better place than like, you know, instead of like, you know, two thousand, you know, 10,000 companies like building it themselves. And, and so that's sort of where like, you know, logically where I see the world evolving to is like, you know, a lot of more of those things should really just be like services that you use in the cloud. And, you know, so you don't even need to have necessarily a platform teams internally that, that does this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. Cool. All right. I have like a question. While you were like talking and you were mentioning like the Docker images there and like how big these images are like in general. And like my thinking is that especially when it comes like to infrastructure, there are still like a lot of primitives around that they just feel like not the right primitives yet. They're like, yeah, or like sometimes like what comes in my mind is that because we are probably like not that far like in terms of age, but if you remember like the back in like early zeros when you had like to download the stupid like super bloated installers like to install something and you had like this really bad like experience it was like, why like I need this thing? Like sometimes I get like the same kind of like feeling, but on the infrastructure level, which obviously like it's much more complicated, right? But we have like the yeah, as you said, like okay, time zones from Uzbekistan. Like, why do I need that like to run like a serverless lambda function dot dot like, <laughs> like yeah, one plus one equals two, right? So what else? What's like, what kind of evolution did you expect to happen? And what are you like expecting to see in the industry? Like as new primitives that like we can yeah. better infrastructure at the end. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, I, I feel like there's a lot of like tools that are like, you know, they try to, you know, wrap underlying layers, but they end up being kind of leaky abstractions in a way where like, it doesn't prevent you from actually having to learn about those underlying la layers anyway. And now you almost like kind of made the problem worse because now there's like another layer that you have to learn, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe like a good abstraction, like, you know, if you build like an amazing data platform tool that wraps Kubernetes and, you know, then like ideally, you know, if you use that tool, you should never have to learn a single thing about Kubernetes or Docker or like whatever. But like none of those tools really work that way. And like, and I feel like they was like kind of leaked through in the end, right? And so. That to me, I think, I don't know, like my theory is like the first generation tools, they're all about like, they enable you to do something like they, you know, they solve like a hard problem, like a hard technical problem in a way that like, you know, th there was no tool before that solved. And like people then have to use those tools by necessity. I think what ends up happening is like second generation then actually like kind of preserve the functionality. But like rewrite all the like, you know, abstraction, you know, and, and actually present it in a much better way where like, you know, fundamentally the technical, you know, the, 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 the enablement is like the same, but you no longer have to like jump through all these hoops to like get it, you know, install, right? Like instead of I was like, I don't know, like, you know, I am looking like, you know, machine learning, right? Like back, I started doing deep learning in like 2014, you know, those days. And it was like incredibly hard back then, like you had to like, build all, you know, install Theano, like, you know, install a bunch of like random CUDA drivers or whatever. Yeah, I guess she kind of still very much a problem. But like, you know, but to some extent, like now you can also just like, you know, go to, you know, Hugging Face, like download a model. And like, you know, now you suddenly have like a model you can actually do like very cool things. But mm -hmm. so I, I think, you know, you, 
you know, it's not like this like similar story to be told at like many different fields. Like, you know, sort of practice things in a way that suddenly becomes a lot more accessible and, you know, it makes it a lot easier and a lot more fun to use. Yeah. 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 I totally agree. All right. Last question for me. And then I will hand like the microphone to Eric again. Eric Dutch. So what kind of like opportunities you see out there, like business opportunities in like building new experiences, like over like cloud, you mentioned at some point that we are still like very early, uh, on, yeah. on, on the clouds. So obviously you believe in that, that's why you build model, but what else is out there in your opinion, like interesting problems that's can be also like interesting business opportunities. Yeah, I mean, like, here's like one thing I've been like ranting about on, on Twitter is CI. Like, I, <laughs> it, it, CI is like this like super janky experience today, right? It, and like, I've been like, you know, I want someone else to build it, but I'm like, you know, I'm just like ranting about it on Twitter. It's like, if no one built it in, you know, in the next year, like I might just do it myself. It's like, I have like kind of an idea that you can even like use model of some of it, but I don't, ideally I don't have to do it. But, but like, you know, what's like crazy about the is like, you know, first of all, like, you know, I don't know, you use like GitHub Actions or whatever, like then you have Actions, I actually think it's like a really cool product in itself. And I think it like, it sort of is the same story of like, it enabled me to do things in a new way. But, you know, today when I do GitHub Actions, like I was like, yeah, I'll stop. And then, you know, like something breaks. And then like, I had this like super slow feedback cycles where you have to like commit something to Git and then like wait like five minutes and then like see in the look. You know, so you have this like slow feedback loops, which is like the, the most like torture for like any developers, like debugging problems with slow feedback loops. And then, you know, you think about all this like extreme amount of like resource, like wasted resources. Like you have like, you know, 10 containers each pulling down the same libraries over and over again and installing them. Like, and, and, and like, and you also think about, you know, I also think a lot about this, you know, unit tests, like they're the ultimate, like parallelizable thing. Like, why can't I just like, let's say I have this like large, you know, project and I, you know, I have a thousand unit tests. Like, can I just like stitch every unit test in the Lambda function and just like run all of them at the same time? Like, you know, cause like you have a human sitting there waiting for, you know, test, you know, that's very, you know, cost, you know, expensive time. And also another thing I think about is like, you have this like super annoying lack of parity between the CI environment and like local testing. And if you think about it from that point, like why do developers even run things locally? It's because the CI environment sucks. But if, if the CI environment was like so good that like the experience was as good as running things locally, like you wouldn't even run the tests locally. You would like develop code and just like launch, you know, a thousand tests and each running in their own Lambda environment, Lambda container or whatever. And then you would immediately just like see the failing tests. You know, what if you can build that? I think that'd be like, you know, fantastic world. I just, you know, I was you were six years. There's very few things where if someone said, would you spend $100,000 making your engineers not have to wait for CI? I'd be like, take my money. So, you know, I think it's a huge opportunity to do this. But, you know, if, if no one else does it in the next few years, like maybe I'll have to do it myself. But I kind of don't <laughs> want to. Sounds good. All right, Eric, it's all yours. Yes, this has been so fascinating. I'm interested to know, have you, like, have you built anything, even if it's just for you or your small team to like address some of those CI issues or are you still just using you know, like a process that you largely hate? I generally tend to build things when I don't like it, but yeah, I know so far we haven't done it for CI. 
maybe one day. Yeah. Yeah. Super interesting. Okay. Well, we're really close to time here. And so I have a, I have a question that is unrelated to technology at all, but I want to know if you still have any of your Spotify playlists <laughs> back in 2008. And if so, what, what music is on them? I, I, I mean, I don't know. Like I, I do. Yeah. I do a lot of playlists and you know, I'm sure you can like find it if you like Google my name and like, you know, browse around a little bit. Like, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm just like degenerate, like, you know, Detroit techno fan, like, you know, growing up in yeah. Europe and like I lived in Berlin at some point. So I, I, I tend to like, you know, my sort of taste tends to skew to those, those sort of, you know, the, the, that, those sort of, sort of styles. But, but I, I mean, I don't know. Like, I'm actually, you know, I always grew up like listening to music. I listen to everything like jazz, hip hop, and like, you know, classical music, like whatever. Like, I, 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 I do like music overall. And that was actually a fantastic experience working at Spotify. Like, I, I got to use, you know, I got to, I, it was like, you know, I almost like wondered, like, I built the music recommendation system purely for like selfish reasons. I discovered like a lot of music throughout my own, you know, through my own system, which was, you know, kind of gave me some sort of pleasure. Yeah, for sure. You know, that's, that's super interesting. I mean, as a, as a Spotify user, I remember, I can't remember where I listened to it, but I, I listened to an interview with Daniel Eck and he was talking about how, you know, at some point you figured out that if you could recommend something new that a user liked every week, then they would, you know, essentially sort of stay with Spotify forever, right? Because you're sort of providing this like discovery experience. Uh, yeah, it's been very yeah. true. Like exposing dabs yeah. to like different things, it, and you know that wasn't me personal, but it was definitely it was people in my team who came up with that idea of Discovery Weekly. People, Edward and and Chris, and a few other people in my team. Fantastic idea that you know I, I still use every week. It's you know it's a yeah good, good product. Yeah, super interesting. All right, well, Eric, this has been such a great conversation. So much more to cover. So we'd love to have you back on the show anytime. Anytime. This is fun. I really appreciate it. Costas, this is going to be, this may sound like an interesting takeaway, but I remember being so interested. I, I think I mentioned on the show that I'd listened to an interview with Daniel Eck, one of the founders of Spotify. And this was years ago, but for some reason that interview has really stuck with me. And I'm going to draw a connection that Eric didn't draw, but that I think is, is interesting. But one thing they talked about in the early days of Spotify was that latency was a really big deal. And so they had to figure out ways to almost like create a user experience that made users okay with latency because speed was a really big deal when you were trying to deliver a large file like an, you know, an MP3 over the internet streaming, right? And it was really interesting to me that he used a lot of very similar language when talking about modal and the developer experience, right? There's like a latency challenge and friction points. And it was it's fascinating to me to think about the similar nature of those two problems. So yeah, that's, that's my big takeaway. I think that's really interesting. Oh yeah, that's like a, actually like a, a great point that you're making here. It's very interesting, like how it connects the developer experience with like the user experience at the end, because yeah, yeah, I think we tend like to consider them as like very different, but yeah, some assumptions that they are common, they just manifest themselves like in a different way. Obviously, like a developer has latency in different things than like someone who listens to music. 
Sure. But yeah, that's, that's, that's an excellent point, actually. I mean, I don't know. I think like every, every part of the conversation with Eric was great. I loved like hearing about, um, the stuff that they are building and how they build them. And what I will keep is that it's great to hear that you can have like startups today, that in order like to operate, they have like to create their own file systems. Yeah. That's like, I think like a great indication of like the progress that has happened, like in all these years in terms of like the infrastructure that we have and the primitives that we have out there to build upon. And uh, yeah, it's like people like just shouldn't be scared to even like go and build their own file system if they have to. So that's what I keep. And yeah, that's hopefully we are going to have him back soon. So yeah, I agree. Awesome. Well, thank you for listening to the Data Stack Show. Great conversation with Eric Bernardson, and we'll catch you on the next one. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Data Stack Show. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app to get notified about new episodes every week. We'd also love your feedback. You can email me, Eric Dodds, at eric at datastackshow.com. That's E-R-I-C at datastackshow.com. The show is brought to you by Rudderstack, the CDP for developers. Learn how to build a CDP on your data warehouse at rudderstack.com.